It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of April 20th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. If you're looking for software, you have lots of choices. You have the kind you can go to the store and buy right off the shelf. Then there's shareware. That's the stuff you try for free, but you're expected to pay for it once the free trial period is over. That's usually 15 or 30 days, sometimes as much as 45, sometimes as little as 5 or 10. But there's some period after which the program may stop working. Some shareware just becomes nagware and continues to ask you to register it, but continues to work. During the time the program is shareware, some features may be disabled, although the Shareware Association frowns on that practice. Then there is adware, stuff you can download for free, but you agree to allow the application to show you advertisements when you're using it. And then there's freeware, completely free, no strings attached. You can use it for as long as you want it, on as many machines as you want it, wherever you want it, whenever you want it. You'll never have to pay for it. A variant of freeware is donationware. It's free, but you are encouraged to make a donation. And a couple of guys have postcardware. The application is free, but they ask you to send them a postcard from wherever you are in the world. Well, you know, some of those free applications rival or exceed what their paid counterparts do. I thought I might share some of the ones that I consider to be essential. FileZilla is a program I use on an almost daily basis. FileZilla is an FTP client. FTP, of course, is File Transfer Protocol. So if you perform any tasks that require you to upload files to a server, oh, say, for example, you do a technology program and once a week you need to upload the web files, and then a day or so later you need to upload the audio files, you're going to need something like an FTP client. Well, not something like an FTP client. You're going to need an FTP client. FileZilla is one of the best, even though it's free. You can get it from the FileZilla website. Now, despite the name, there is no connection between FileZilla and the Mozilla organization, the people who make Firefox. FileZilla is available for Windows, Linux, BSD, OS X, and other operating systems. And in addition to standard FTP, FileZilla also provides support for the secure variants of the file transfer protocol. It is localized so that it's available in lots of languages. It can handle file transfers larger than 4 gigabytes. And it can also resume the transfer of a file should the connection be interrupted. So, in short, FileZilla does just about everything that programs costing 50 to to $100 or more will do. And in some cases, FileZilla does more than those programs will do. Second, here's a program that provides for some rather specialized needs. I spend a lot of time at a location where I am unable to use my standard email client to pick up or send messages on my personal website. Well, the solution is easy enough. All I have to do is use an application that's capable of making a secure connection to a server where I happen to have a shell account, then set up port forwarding for ports 25 for outbound mail and 110 for inbound mail. Well, the problem with that solution is that most applications capable of doing that cost at least $100. All except Putty. 
Putty is free. Port forwarding can be a bit intimidating. It seems complicated, but it really isn't. When you set up your email client normally, you have to tell it what the SMTP server is, that's for outbound mail, and what the POP3 server is, that's for inbound mail. The change that's made for Putty is that both the inbound and outbound servers are simply called localhost. Next, what I have to do is tell Putty the location of the real server, the POP3 server and the SMTP server. I then assign local ports 25 and 110 to remote ports 25 and 110. In plain English, what this means is that when I try to connect to my inbound POP3 server, the connection initially stays on the local machine. It's directed to Putty. Putty has been told to pass traffic through the firewall to the server where I have a shell account, and from there it connects to the POP3 server at my website host. The outbound SMTP connection works exactly the same way, except it's going the other direction, and it's on port 25. Putty has the additional capability to serve as a Telnet terminal emulator. It's a little weak in that area. Speaking of firewalls, what if you want a software firewall, but you don't really want to spend 50 75 or 100 bucks to buy one? Well, Kubota has made a name for itself by giving away a firewall application and a bunch of other security tools. The company says that its main revenue stream comes from authenticating web business with SSL certificates. They feel that giving away related security tools will increase consumer awareness, and that does indeed seem to be the case. Kubota Firewall has a good reputation, although it does pop up more warnings than I like by default. At least those warnings can be turned off. When you try to download the free version, you will be shown a paid version, too, at $39 a year. This is new. The Plus version offers additional help in configuring the tool and in removing some threats. Most people will do just fine with the version that's free. In addition to the free firewall, Komodo offers free anti-malware, web authentication, and antivirus application. There's even a free basic email security certificate. Unfortunately, the certificate works only with Microsoft Outlook Express versions 5 and 6 and with Microsoft Outlook 98, 2000, and 2003. If you use one of those applications, great. The certificates can be used to encrypt messages to ensure that the text and any attachments you send may be read only by the intended recipient. You can also digitally sign messages to authenticate them and to ensure that the text and attachments can't be modified during transit. However, if you're somebody like me who does not use Outlook or Outlook Express, sorry, I have talked before about AVG Antivirus. In addition to the paid versions of AVG Antivirus, Greasoft does offer a highly capable free version. At the office, we have the server version of AVG Antivirus, and we also have individual copies on each computer. At home, I use the paid version on my main system. On the notebook computer, I use the free one. And recently, Greasoft added AVG Anti-Spyware free, and AVG Anti-Rootkit free. Previously, these were products from Iwido. The anti-spyware application is typical for this type of spyware program in that it sees every cookie on the computer as a threat to be wiped out. Well, that's silly. It not only encourages irrational fear and paranoia that some people have about cookies, but it can cause problems for you. 
so I'm not really a big fan of anti-spyware applications or of real-time rootkit countermeasures. LogMeIn lets you work on your home computer from the office or the other way around if you want to work on the office computer from home. If you ever need to work on a file that's at the office and you're at home, what'd you do? Did you drive back to the office to get it? Maybe you called somebody who's at the office, asked that person to email the file to you. Or you could just wait until the next day when you're in the office to work on the file. Well, if your answer to any of those was, that's what I'm doing, the uh, good news is log me in. When you install log me in on a computer, you create a mechanism that allows you to connect to that computer and use it as if you were sitting in front of the machine. The free version doesn't allow for file transfers from one machine to the other, but there are lots of free ways to do that these days. Relatively easy workaround would involve using an FTP client, remember those, send the files to a server, or just email them to yourself. Maybe you've been wondering when I was going to mention OpenOffice. Well, that time is now. OpenOffice runs on Windows machines, on Macs under OS X, and on Linux machines. So that's an immediate improvement over Microsoft Office. Office comes only in Windows and Mac versions. And there's a shortcoming for Microsoft Office on the Mac in that there is no database application. OpenOffice provides a graphical front end for MySQL, and that graphical front end runs on all three platforms. The graphical front end for MySQL, I have to mention, though, is far from perfect. In testing, I've seen the application change the order of data elements. That is simply wrong. I can't consider OpenOffice to be an acceptable alternative to Office as long as the database application is as weak as it is. Primary applications, though, word processing and spreadsheet, work very well. The presentations application is acceptable. If you need to routinely share and edit documents with Microsoft Office users, you probably want Microsoft's applications. But OpenOffice can read and write files in Microsoft format. The problem is the translations aren't always exactly right. So those who run a completely standalone operation will find that OpenOffice is just fine. In talking about IrfanView, it's important to differentiate between image editors and image viewers. IrfanView doesn't include all of the features of programs such as Thumbs Plus, and it is certainly nowhere close to the same league as Photoshop or PaintShop Pro. But it's a quick and easy way to view photos that are stored on your computer. If you install IrfanView and set it up to be the default program for image files, it'll open whenever you double-click an image. That's the way I set it up. It's not an application I would recommend if you need to modify files, but it is a great program to have on your computer for viewing images, and it even does slideshows, and it's free. For a company that provides so many free applications, Google is making an awful lot of money. Search Engine is paid for by advertisers, of course, as are some of Google's other applications. Google Earth is an amazing bit of free software that can also be educational, or you can just waste a lot of time with it. seems that I always start using Google Earth to answer a legitimate question, and then about three hours later I realize that I've wasted the past two hours and 55 minutes just looking at pictures and reading information. So maybe waste isn't really quite the proper classification of the time, because in the process of doing that, I often find out information about a location. I learn things, facts I didn't know previously. And I've always wanted to visit places such as London, Moscow, Beijing, Tokyo, for example. But 
at this stage of my life, it's likely that that's probably not going to happen. So instead, I can use Google Earth to fly over these cities, zoom in on areas of interest, and feel that I know as much about them as I know about Columbus, Worthington, or New York City, or even San Jose. For more than 20 years, I've been corresponding with a man in Izhevsk, Russia. Google Earth finally made it possible for me to see his city, and even some views of the street on which he lives. That would be Ulitsa Karl Marxa, Karl Marx Street. The views available from Google Earth are several blocks south of where he lives. But I can see that his building is near a lake, and that west of the lake is primarily farmland. Previously, all I knew was that Izhevsk is about 600 miles east of Moscow. So Google Earth is a lot of fun. I also have to mention Ubuntu Linux, or maybe I should just mention any version of Linux, but lately I've been looking pretty closely at Ubuntu. It challenges both Windows and the Mac OS X. All the other free applications are just that, applications. This one is an operating system. Linux keeps edging closer to being ready for prime time on the desktop, and the Ubuntu distribution is one of the reasons why. As I always point out, right about here in this discussion, if you absolutely must use applications that are available only under Windows, then you probably need to continue using the Windows operating system from Microsoft. I know that Wine will allow some Windows applications to run under Linux, but I really don't like to go out of my way looking for trouble. If you can't survive without PowerPoint or Photoshop or Word or Access, then Linux isn't for you, at least not quite yet. But if your needs don't extend much beyond being able to send and receive email, visit websites, compose Word and Excel documents, create websites, Linux is probably okay for you. There are still some gotchas involved with Linux using a modem, for example. You need to make sure that your hardware is supported before you make the leap. The problem with modems is that most computers come with what's called a win modem. And it's called a win modem because there is code in Windows that actually enables the modem. Well, that code is missing from Linux. So there's always a difficult time getting one of those cheap win modems to work with Linux. But then how many people use modems these days? When you're ready for your next computer, keep all of your options open. The right operating system might be Apple's OS X, Microsoft's Vista, or whatever the next version of Windows is, or it might be one of the Linux distributions such as Ubuntu. Don't rule it out. Last but certainly not least in my list of free applications, if you need to create PDFs on occasion but you don't really need to send those off to a printer for high-quality output, and by that I mean sending it to a print shop, you may not need Adobe Acrobat. Well, download PDF Creator. It is a free application. It installs as a printer on your Windows computer. It means you can create a PDF from any application that can print. That's, of course, most applications. The only shortcoming right now, there is not a Vista-capable version available. Freeware. It means that sometimes to get the best application, you have to pay nothing. To get Internet connectivity, you must pay something. I have to admit, until March of this year, I had never installed DSL service anywhere. I've had high-speed Internet service at the office from multiple T1 lines to now something much faster. Cable service at home, but when a friend needed to replace his slow dial-up service with something faster, I recommended AT&T's DSL service because the basic service is less than $20 a month, 
and that service would be at least ten times faster than his anemic Earthlink service. Well, after three hours over the course of two days, it still wasn't installed. I was beginning to wonder if all those horror stories I've heard about DSL are true. When we ordered DSL service, nothing mentioned filters. Now, I knew about them, but my understanding was that they would be included, and more or less, they were. The installation kit, when it arrived a few days after we ordered it, came with a data cable for the network, with a DSL cable with a power supply, the DSL modem, and four filters, one for use at the DSL connection, and three for non-wall mount phones. Well, you know, most people have wall mount phones. Certainly my friend did. So when we needed that piece that actually AT&T promised to include in the printed literature that came with the DSL equipment, it was illustrated as being included, but it wasn't there. So we had to order it. More about that in a minute. The instructions said to install the filters first, so I did that, at least the ones that I had. The kitchen phone, that's the one on the wall, had no filter because AT&T hadn't sent one. They did promise to send a complimentary filter if we ordered it online, but we couldn't get online to order it. The instructions that came with the kit said the wall filter would be included. That was, of course, wrong. There were several other minor errors that would easily confuse somebody without any background in network installation. For example, they misnamed the connectors. And they also said that the green cables were gray. At least they both start with the letter G. The instructions said the filters should be installed first, but didn't mention that having a filter on every phone was crucial to the operation of the service. Well, when it came time to test the system, the installation program reported that it wasn't able to get a connection. I tried several troubleshooting steps described in the instructions, then called the toll-free number for assistance. It was Sunday, and the person who answered my call clearly spoke English as a distant second language. Unfortunately, she also had a minimal grasp of technology. I felt that I probably knew more about DSL than she did. After an hour, she told me that the line tests had identified a problem with the lines, but it took her another 15 minutes to provide the information that the line maintenance folks would need when we called for on-site tests. After getting that information, we arranged for the on-site test, and then approximately five minutes after I left, the AT&T line maintenance office called my friend, said there was no problem with the lines, and that they would not be sending anyone. My friend called me. Is the DSL light still flashing, I asked? It was. So, of course, there was a problem with the lines. The following Tuesday, I stopped by to take another look and confirm that all of the connections I had made were as specified in AT&T's instructions. Except for where the instructions didn't mesh with the physical world, everything was correct. The modem's DSL indicator was still flashing, so I powered down the modem, powered it up again, tried again. The light was still flashing. The line maintenance division had given my friend another number to call, one where people spoke both English and geek. Hey, this was good. After ten minutes, the technician I spoke to, a guy named Bill, told me that he wanted to run another line test. I asked about the missing filters. He said, oh, that's going to keep you from getting connected, but we can still run the line test. That'll take about 45 minutes. Well, about 45 minutes later, the phone rang, and a recorded announcement said there was a line problem. Big surprise. AT&T would arrange to have a technician examine the lines outside the house, and if the problem wasn't there, they would make an appointment to look at the inside wiring. 
And indeed they did. For another $100, they found and fixed the problem with lines inside the house. Now, the problems inside the house had been caused by mistakes that an earlier AT&T technician had made. But it did give the company the opportunity to charge my friend for another house call. Clever marketing. Early on the Sunday morning after the AT&T visit, I stopped by to finish setting up Outlook so that my friend could receive mail sent to his domain and send messages via AT&T's outbound mail server. I expected that to be an easy 30-minute process. Three hours later, I managed to get it to work right. Normally, the steps are trivial. Outlook needs to be set up to download mail from a POP server at the website host and to send mail through the SMTP server operated by AT&T. No big deal. Sometimes port 25, which is used for SMTP, is blocked, and it's necessary to use, for example, port 465. Authentication is often required, even though the user is already logged on via DSL. I tried all of those. Still got failure messages. After digging several layers deep in AT&T's help pages online, I found that the version of Outlook my friend was using needed an update to work with Secure Sockets layer settings, the SSL settings. The fix for Outlook downloaded okay, but then it crashed. So I downloaded Service Pack 3 for Office XP and installed it. Still couldn't send mail. At this point, I decided it was time to call AT&T again, hoping for another geek-like guy like Bill. After working through several layers of the automated attendant, I was directed to a page on the AT&T website. That page told me that what I was trying to do would never work until I set up the AT&T account in a special way that would allow me to validate the email address we wanted to use as the sender. Apparently, it would have been too much like good customer service to have put that information somewhere in the email help section of the customer account management area of the website, or maybe even to have concluded it in the printed information that came with the DSL setup. So I logged onto the AT&T website to make those changes, found that the illustrations AT&T provided for their own website were inaccurate, big surprise there, and the instructions didn't exactly apply to the current site but the instructions were at least close enough that I was able to set up the account properly on the second try. Thanks, AT&T, for making that exercise far more difficult than it should have been. Despite all that, it's still an improvement. Earthlink's speed had dropped to about 20 kilobits per second. I consider that unacceptable even for modems. The DSL speed, using AT&T's lowest cost option, tops 600 kilobytes per second. That's not much compared to cable modem speeds of 3,000 kilobits per second and above, but those speeds are nothing compared with countries where there are speeds of 30,000 kilobits per second and above. Still, when compared to 20 kilobits per second, 600 kilobits per second is impressive. Downloading updates that could take hours or days at modem speed are completed within 15 to 20 minutes on DSL. Granted, in civilized countries, these downloads take a minute or less, but here in the U.S., we'll take what we can get. In nerdly news, you'd think that the people who run those big companies, the CEOs, the same people who are sometimes paid 250 times what their average workers make or more, you'd think those people would be smart enough to spot a dead fish in their inbox. A surprising number of them, when presented with an email that claims to be a federal subpoena, not only open the message, but also click on a link that says it will display the entire subpoena. 
The message has the CEO's name, company name, and phone number. Those are all easy to obtain. When the brilliant and incisive CEO clicks the link, the result is not, of course, the full text of the subpoena. It is, however, the installation of a keystroke logger that snags things like usernames, passwords, and other confidential information, and then sends it along to Singapore. The security experts, if nothing else, have a sense of humor. They are calling this whaling. It's like fishing, only larger. The whales, I'm sorry, the CEOs are so unable to protect themselves that federal courts have posted a warning on their website. The warning says, reports have been received of bogus email grand jury subpoenas purportedly sent by a United States district court. The emails are not a valid communication from a federal court and may contain harmful links. Recipients are warned not to open any links or download any information relating to this email notice. The federal judiciary's email address is uscourts.gov. The emails in question appear to be sent from a similar address that is not owned and operated by the federal courts. Law enforcement authorities have been notified. The Internet Storm Center, that's at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, says there have been about 2,000 victims so far. Oh, and one CEO who received a copy of the message but became a bit suspicious sent it along to the corporate lawyer. The corporate lawyer opened it, clicked the link. There might be a lesson in here, or maybe a moral, but I'll leave that for you to work out. And speaking of corporate lawyers, here's something. Everybody knows New York City is the Big Apple. It has been that for decades, as far back as the 20s. That's the 1920s, long before Apple was formed, long before the Steves, Jobs and Wozniak, were even born. New York has used the Apple as a symbol for decades. But now Apple, the company, has a different idea. Apple wants the Big Apple to stop using the Apple because this is going to confuse Apple's customers. Now, even an Apple corporate attorney can probably tell the difference between a large city on the East Coast and a large computer company on the West Coast. This is idiocy. New York recently created a green initiative. They use the term Green New York City, G-R-E-E capital N-Y-C. The goal of Green New York City is to help guide the area toward lower carbon emissions. And as a logo, they're using an apple. Take a look at the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, to see the logo. Apple is crying foul and says that New York City cannot use the apple because the apple is Apple's logo. Excuse me? Apple's corporate lawyers say that the green New York City apple will confuse customers and that this confusion will damage Apple by diluting distinctiveness of the company's trademark. This brings to mind a two-syllable word. The first syllable rhymes with full, and the second syllable rhymes with spit. First of all, the logo, although it's an apple, looks nothing like Apple's apple. New York City filed the logo application with the United States Patent and Trade Office a little less than a year ago, and within months, Apple had filed its objection. So it's true that all of the logos, and I show Apple's current logo, Apple's previous logo, and the green New York City Apple on the TechBiter Worldwide website, it's true that all of these logos do represent Apple's. But if Apple thinks its customers are going to be confused by New York City's green New York City Apple, then the people who run Apple must think their customers are utter morons who just fell off a turnip wagon. I am, of course, not an attorney. This is in the intellectual property rights area of law. 
And I understand if you spend a lot of time and money creating a brand, if you spend a lot of time and money creating a process, then you don't want someone else to use the same materials or the same process at your expense. Okay, fine. But this is silly. New York City has used the apple for decades. You know what? It'd be funny. I think it would be funny and fitting if New York City was awarded exclusive use of the Apple as a logo. Then maybe Steve Jobs and company would have to find something else to use. I've got an idea. Maybe a crying baby. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of April 20th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you want, you can send me an email from there. Thanks. See you next week. Bye-bye.